Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. Today, we'll be talking with Robin Marks, who spent most of the last two decades developing wide-ranging expertise and professional experience in the field of aging. Robin is currently the Executive Director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. She also has had an extensive career in the assisted living field, where she be, and she'll be talking today about a sensitive and often complicated issue. When is it time for your aging parents to consider leaving their current home and move into some kind of assisted living community? Granted, moving is never easy at any age. Most of us want to age in place, remaining in the comfort of our homes and neighborhood for as long as possible. But at some point, this may not be safe or practical for our loved ones, and eventually, of course, us. At the same time, transitioning into a form of supportive housing may be a better choice, not just a default option, keeping people safer and healthier, as well as providing an opportunity for a more socially active, productive, and enjoyable life, if we know how to do it right. In today's episode, I'll talk to Robin about the many questions a family needs to consider when choosing an adult community. Realistically, what is the level of health you expect your loved one will need as they get older? What kind of living environment is important to them? What kind of social engagement and recreational activities will a senior community provide? How can you identify suitable communities? And what do you need to ask the staff when you visit? And going forward, how can families manage some of the most daunting of situations, providing the best possible care for loved ones with dementia? These are tough questions because families are complex, individuals are complex, and caring for them requires a thoughtful, not a one-size-fits-all approach. Through it all, Robin has stood by one golden rule, always focus on what people can do, not on what they can't. So with that in mind, let's welcome Robin Marks. Robin, welcome to the show. Hello, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Now, listen, before we dive into the topics for the today's show, um, let's talk a little bit about your background. Now, a lot of people, including me, sort of get interested in aging as we age, but you've been interested for a long time. Your, your bachelor's degree is in, in aging. You have a dual, you know, uh, you know, competency in aging society and multicultural gerontology. Interesting <laughs> approach. And you saw it from the beginning. Yes. Um, I wound up finishing my degree when I was already in assisted living. And when I saw the way people flourish in that environment and the elements that it takes for people to flourish, it made me more interested in meeting those needs uh, with an infrastructure of education to support learning that would help translate into tangible uh, quality of life issues. So, for instance, um, the multicultural interest came about because in realizing that uh, as memory fades, it's really affecting short-term memory and long-term stays intact, if not forever, certainly longer. So it becomes crucial to really understand a person's history, their cultural touchstones, 
uh, the, the soundtrack of their life and uh, understand what they connect with from the past. Because if short-term memory is getting fuzzy, then you're left with that history. Even the triumphs and traumas of a person's childhood become very, very important. Um, a native language becomes very important, even if someone has been speaking English for 50 years. So that made me realize in order to connect with people, you have to meet them where they are. And if where they are has to do with their history, then we, we really have a responsibility. It's, it's, it's actually a pleasure. It's very enriching. Uh, but it's a pleasure to really understand a person's background and then be able to provide um, whatever is relevant for their mm-hmm. lives. Right. So when, when do you start this conversation? I mean, when is this is a question you often hear, like, when is the time? When is the time? Well, I think what you alluded to before and actually mentioned in your introduction, we're all basically creatures of habit. We, we are resistant kind of to change, but we do make changes along the way. Right. And um, we change environments just like in school. We start out in elementary school and desks are so high and the playground equipment is rather safe. And then we graduate to, in my day, it was junior high. Now they call it middle school. And um, you might even get a laboratory with a Bunsen burner and you're, <laughs> right, you know, right. able to handle more challenges. And then we move on to high school, yet another environment. I see this as part of a continuum of aging and I don't see a stigma attached to it. And I think when a person has the right things in their environment, they're in a position to have their best quality of life. So as someone needs a little help at home, in order to ease some of the challenges and chores and burdens, cleaning, maybe cooking, maybe shopping, get some home care. Uh, if you are that person that's going to the senior center and still meeting your friends and you're just lightening the load at home, fabulous, and that works. If in time a person is not getting to the senior center and not seeing their friends, it's too hot, it's too cold, my knees hurt, and little by little, they're becoming almost like a prisoner in their own home. I would say that's really a good time to explore assisted living, which is right. part of the continuum of care. Right. And it puts everything at a person's fingertips. Right. So I think that, you know, part of this then, you know, leads to sort of ha- is often having the adult children be in conversation with the parents and sort of observing, seeing how they're doing. Um, you know, are they having trouble doing chores? I mean, Lots of times, as you well know, you know, parents say, no, I'm fine. I'm I'm fine. So you have to basically, you know, really observe them sometimes and see how they're doing. And of course, the the, the important thing is to kind of catch them uh, before these become a critical issue. I think that's something that, you know, you often stress is like, you don't want to wait until a crisis happens. You don't want to wait until, you know, they, if they're, if you think that they're having, you know, observe, are they having difficulty walking? Because if they are and they don't want to admit it and they fall, that's the end of their independent living often. So, um, so um, yeah, looking for these sorts of things before you absolutely need to make this sort of change. Um, now, um, what about um, dealing uh, another issue that I'm uh, familiar with, and I'm sure you are too, is what I call the sibling syndrome. <laughs> How do you often, if there's more than one adult, child, you know, these have become discussions among children in terms of, you know, what's the best for mom or dad. So 
Any thoughts about how you uh, address this issue? I actually have many thoughts. Um, and, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> and just the way a dementia is not a one-size-fits-all diagnosis, um, family dynamics are not one-size-fits-all either, um, though more than a few times I have felt like I've seen the Smothers Brothers routine play out in front of me with some sibling rivalry and one-upmanship. And uh, it, it does... Uh, sometimes they say like in, in a divorce, the couch is never the couch. It's, there's just a lot of things that get attached to it. And that right. happens too with family dynamics uh, when you have aging parents. So for me, once I have an uh, assessment of what really would be beneficial for the mom or for the dad, and if it is a change of environment, and then we're looking at the obstacles that prevent that from happening, one could be the resistance of the person themselves. But before we even get to that, you do need the family to be pulling in the same direction. And that's in the direction of the parent. Um, life was never fair. I do remind people that it's not getting fair now. And it is a time to uh, really call upon your better angels in order to not look to settle the score. Uh, but basically be very realistic about what's going to be beneficial for that parent and um, and if it means a change of environment, coming to terms with another thing that could happen is like the divide and conquer. Who's going to do what with a, in a family? Right. Who's going to handle finances and who's going to take mom and dad or, uh, or dad around uh, and who is going to be there until, well, during the transition until the decision is in place? Um, it can't always be a 50-50 arranged. It's not always equally shared. Sometimes you have the child that's living in California right. who's willing to help with the finances but can't be there physically. And we have to come to terms with that and not be judgmental because they can't uproot and suddenly become local and people do live in different places. So uh, there's a way to make it more equitable but don't look for it to be equal because you're going to wind up being very resentful and disappointed. Right. I think that's a very good point. I think that uh, certainly uh, what we're engaging in now, Zoom has made things a little bit um, more manageable, you know, because, you know, realistically, siblings do live in different parts of the country and often not in the same place that their parents are living. So that this, in some ways, you know, uh, can facilitate these kinds of discussions and, and basically, you know, make them more manageable. You know, but I think you're right. It's 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 the, it's the family being willing to work as a team. Yes. I mean, so when uh, I was taking care of my mom, when I have three brothers. You know, two of them are close to to be uh, geographically, but one is in South Carolina. Uh, but that one in South Carolina is a doctor, <laughs> or he's retired now. But at the time, you know, getting his input in terms of just you know an assessment of how's mom doing, you know, the kinds of questions he would ask. You know, so he wasn't here physically, but you can make use of what his expertise is. So I thought you know, that's the kind of paying attention I think it's, you're really you're right about. Um, so let me just move on for a little bit to one of the, the you know, one of the uh, questions of the day, um, which I'm sure you get quite often, which is, all right, what about this COVID thing? Where are we now? How should I address this? Obviously, there were lots of issues about this, you know, with nursing homes and a lot of concern. 
not quite so much with assisted living, but generally the issue of how do you keep um, our parents uh, generally safe in these communities and what sort of questions should you ask um, uh, communities, assisted living communities, if you're considering, if it's time to, you know, consider such a move? Well, it's first important to understand that the Department of Health and the CDC are regulating these environments. Right. And it's a very fluid process that sometimes changes day to day, depending on statistics. So I definitely understand the frustration. I definitely understand the desire to want to be there for someone, particularly if there is cognitive decline and you might be one of the most important links to a person's reality. Um, And I do think it added extra levels of of heartache for people that couldn't be present for their loved one. Um, That said, we're living through a pandemic and we haven't done that before unless somebody was around in 1918, but uh, it's been, we're learning as we go we have to honor and respect what the Department of Health and, and the CDC are, are dictating as far as protocols. I think that you would want an environment to take every precaution possible. And if it curtails some visits in person, it means it's keeping your loved one safer too, because each person you're in touch with is raising the risk of you know getting COVID. So now things are easing up again, especially as we become more vaccinated. I, th- I think the herd immunity number is 75 or 80%. You know, we're moving in the right direction. Anybody that's been double vaccinated, I think, and then two weeks uh, after that is starting to feel a little more relaxed, but all, you still have to be cautious. So again, t- I can't imagine getting through all of this and I'm not even much of a technology person, but I wound up embracing it because it's the next best thing. So I would want to see environments because even if visits have started again, there's no telling about whether this is going to stay in place. We have to first see how we're managing with the numbers as people are rolling back into life. Um, Find out what the policy is. Do you make time for a caregiver to bring uh, a laptop to mom or or a... um, an iPad or the phone even so that there can be some contact that way and and help facilitate that. I'd want to see that. Are there plexiglass windows where you're seeing the person in in real time, uh, but maybe not having direct contact? So you know that even if things go back in the other direction, what is it they're accustomed to doing? Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that you mentioned that when you start thinking about doing this, that um, it's probably a good idea once you start narrowing down ideas about where to go, that the adult children talk to the facility first and then bring in the parent, parents. to. Um, yes, I, I do like to see the adult children uh, or, the, you know, loved ones, clo- close friends who's ever taking the lead on this. They should basically uh, be narrowing the field there. If you know a person well and you now get a pretty good realistic read on what their needs are, and then you also have to factor in the practical reality of finances, uh, then you go and take a look and, and sort of kick the tires to see the environment, see the kind of socialization that's going on, see the population that's living there. Right. So once you establish that it hits the right basis, including what's affordable or most affordable, then bring the parent to see 
two to three places. Right, right. Now, um, we're going to take a break shortly, but when we uh, come back, um, I just want to look at a, a, a few different more specifics. So as we start looking at places, um, what kinds of um, things should we consider more specifically about, you know, things like location, uh, things like the lifestyle, the personal health services that are needed by your loved one, um, the different kind of choices available. Um, so uh, when we come back, um, we're going to look at, first of all, not not a, you know, in-depth you know, look at the different kinds of communities, but just kind of an outline you know, but what are, what are the different kinds of basic choices in terms of uh, supportive housing and assisted living? And then we could dive more into, you know, the, the kinds of things you should be asking. I think often, as, you, as you've put it, to make sure that these are things that are really important to your loved one, that they're the most important thing. You might have certain ideas yourself about what you think you like, what might be best for them, but it's about them. So when we come back, we'll have much more with Robin Marks, expert in aging and assisted living. Uh, So don't go anywhere. We have much more to talk about. Yes, we do. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Brave Hearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks, where we're talking with Robin Marks, expert in aging overall and in particular assisted living and also um, working with Alzheimer's, uh, people with Alzheimer's and dementia, other forms of dementia. So um, before the break, we were talking about different kinds of supportive housing, assisted living. So I know there are plenty of resources where people can get much more detail about the different kinds of housing, but just give, give us a quick rundown of what the continuum is from independent you know, living to you know, to uh, special, you know, facilities that uh, are specialized for Alzheimer's patients. 
So um, you have your active uh, seniors, you know, uh, some communities start 55 and up, some are 60, some are 65 uh, in, in various neighborhoods. Um, a lot of them are designed to make socialization easy in terms of that there's a clubhouse, you're going to be with contemporaries, uh, they might set up shows and, and trips, and um, that's certainly worth considering. Uh, that's, that would be, um, I guess, the young old sort of go that route. Mm -hmm. And then um, if people decide to stay in their own homes, uh, definitely seek out your local adult daycare. There's social model as well as medical model. And everything is really about matchmaking. I have always viewed it that way. Uh, it's not going to be about perfection. It's going to be about coming as close to perfection as possible. Um, senior centers do a wonderful job of people, keeping people engaged and right. socialized and stimulated. And then if you're having a little trouble or, you know, maybe it's getting a little overwhelming at home um, and you're not moving, a little home care, uh, whether it's in the form of some light housekeeping assistance, there's things like that that are available. Uh, as long as you are staying engaged in the community and going to your senior center and meeting your friends and enjoying a, a nice quality of life, home is the right answer. Uh, if you want to change where you're living to um, an ad uh, adult uh, age group, that you know that could be an option for some people. Then if you find you're not really engaging with the outside world and you need the outside world brought to you, that's really what assisted living is. I think there's a lot of resistance sometimes, not just the natural resistance of people who are creatures of habit, uh, which we all have, but that there's a concept that, you know, don't put me away, a promise that some parents have made, please promise me you won't put me away. And the, the dot, dot, dot was really don't put me away in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. Years ago, assisted living didn't exist. So it, it, the, the concept was, you know, don't put me away in a nursing home. So I'd love to just touch base on what the, what the fundamental differences are in a very, very light way, a uh, very casual way to look at it. You can think of assisted living really as a senior citizen hotel in terms of a lifestyle. It is a social model. And basically, you are putting together two sides. One is the living part, what kind of residential accommodations there are. Uh, is this a place that has little apartments or studios, or is it more dormitory style? Um, and if you are going to have a roommate, what goes into that process of setting you up with somebody? And uh, what what's part of the environment in this living part? You know, how much emphasis is there on socialization, on activities? What comes in? If, if a person's having trouble getting out, you want a whole lot coming in. Right. And a good activities program, a robust activities program, is, is really the heartbeat of any good assisted living. Music is a language no one forgets. And so you, you certainly would want a very enriched uh, music program if, if a daily basis would be ideal or as close to that as possible. So that's the the living part of assisted living, then there's the assisted part. What does right. someone need help with? And there's a very big spectrum of care. Some people may need some physical help. Some people may need some cognitive help. They're not taking their medications on time, but they're much more okay than not okay. So you want an environment where you see those things addressed in the spectrum, and you want to also anticipate that typically 
over time, most people will need more care. Right. So you want to go in with a sense of how far in this aging journey is this environment going to be appropriate. Right. Uh, very loosely, a nursing home is a medical model. Right? right. So we said assisted living is a social model. Lifestyle is like a senior citizen hotel. A nursing home is a medical model. And there are good ones. But it, the emphasis is not going to be really on socialization. Uh, it is going to be treating you as a patient. So we'd all rather be a person than a patient. We'd rather be, it's really like a long-term hospital stay in terms of how to look at it. So there are good ones. It may become necessary, but nobody should go to a nursing home prematurely or unnecessarily. Right. It doesn't really foster independence in the same way that an assisted living environment does. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that th those are important distinctions. You know, I think that certainly now there's a lot of public discussion about nursing homes, about, you know, uh, transparency and about the vulnerability of residents because of COVID. And, you know, it is unfortunate that many of the uh, people who have passed away have been in nursing homes. But I think that it is important to recognize that they are, they are you know, important facilities, as you, as you just said. Um, if, if somebody really needs that medical attention, often assisted living facilities are not designed to do that. They're not um, licensed to do that. So nursing homes do, do have a specific function. And certainly, you know, even when, um, you know, we, we kept, we were able to keep our mom at home um, until she passed several years ago, but it was difficult. And the, the cutoff point is where you need, you know, uh, medical attention every day not just support and assistance where you really need medical attention from a nurse or a doctor every day. That's what a nursing home can do that you can't do at home mm -hmm. or in assisted living. So there's definitely a place for them. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, but we're talking basically mostly about assisted living. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, so Robin, when, when you um, and your parents go to one of these facilities, what should you look for? What, what should you ask the staff I think the first thing you should do is, is take a realistic assessment of, of your own loved one. Because if your parent was never the life of the party, they're not going to get to assisted living typically and become the life of the party. So sometimes managing expectations is important also. Right. If your parent was home and a little bit forgetful or more than a little bit, little bit forgetful, uh, a good assisted living environment is, is not the cure for that. But the idea is to hold on to what you have so you're not losing more ground because stimulation and socialization are at your fingertips. So that's very important. Uh, to be realistic in, in what your own expectations are. That said, the rest is matchmaking. If your parent um, maybe wasn't the life of the party, but would have a good conversation with the person next to them, well, then you want a good table arrangement three times a day that your loved one is going to be having meals and you want them to get that comfort level of familiarity so that they take root with the people at their table. So you want to see, is there, do the, is there uh, um, a lot of attention being paid to those table arrangements? The way if we were making a dinner party, we would do that. We would try to seat people who were compatible. And that's, uh, that's an important aspect. 
you want to see a range of activities, some of which a parent may already like, and some of which say, hmm, you know, my father wasn't an arts and crafts guy, but when they put some watercolors in front of him and had a little discussion as a, uh, a, uh, as a, uh, a starting point for creating something, he did actually rather well. Um, and wound up making uh, colorful stripes. And then it, it brought back a conversation about when he was in menswear and the clothing industry. So, and we had a very nice uh, deep conversation for, uh, based on that. So you want to see that kind of engagement and enough variety if your parent used to play cards. They may not be able to actually play a game of gin rummy, but they think they can and they would like to feel they can. Let's make room for that that it doesn't really matter if they're playing it correctly. Maybe they could play that game with somebody else and, and you can make the rules a little more you know, elementary so the person is still enjoying a game of cards in some sort of way. Maybe the game of uh, cards changes and it's not gin rummy and it becomes, you know, go fish or some of the other games that we played in our youth. Right. Do, do some of these uh, uh, communities, do they have um, residents or staff? How do they help you transition in terms of introducing you to other people or, um, you know, kind of basically um, in-house people who can help you make this transition? It's good to understand that change isn't easy, uh, mm-hmm. but it is possible. We've all done it. Nobody is really living where they were born. Um, and pretty much it takes about six to eight weeks is a good rule of thumb for someone to acclimate and take root. Some people do it a a little sooner. Some people it takes a little longer and uh, you want every advantage for that process to go smoothly, but there's no substitute for time. So it doesn't mean it's a sign of something going wrong. If a parent is doing nothing but complaining, that's (laughs) right. That is, uh, those are the aches and pains of transitions. I asked for iced tea. I got hot coffee. Can you believe this place? You know, uh, I, I advise the loving children not to go on the roller coaster ride and take everything as gospel. But uh, usually every resident will have a case manager. Make that person you go to. And you don't have to go to your parent for each thing. Have a good contact in the assisted living environment so that you can check things out. Uh, before take, going on a roller coaster ride, and and take a good read at about four weeks and just see if it's going in the right direction. Uh, sometimes you, a person has to give a thirty day notice if they're moving out electively, right. and they give a deposit, uh, and they're allowed to have that deposit back if they do give thirty days notice. Take a read after a month, which is you know basically the four week point. Right. If you think that. It, you're not sure still, give notice. You don't want to move that person at that point anyway. Because, right. you know, but you're giving you 30 days notice, which allows another month to happen of living there. And within a couple of weeks, I mean, if it's not, if it's truly not working out, or you don't find the place to be responsive, it gives you time to find the next right answer. Right, right. Now, you mentioned earlier, too, that they're, you know, they're, you have to be realistic about the progressive nature right, of your parents' health and support. Um, now, so what level of support is there in terms of health? I mean, do they have, they bring in doctors, they have doctors on staff. I mean, what, what is, uh, obviously it depends on the different community, but That's what are the different answer. options? Mm-hmm. The, uh, you do find a range. It's a very, if that question is answered in a very individualized way from community to community. 
So you would want to know, is there a doctor on the premises? Do you have specialists who are visiting? Um, if there's not a doctor on the premises, how easy is it for access? Um, what happens in an emergency? You want to know which is the 911 hospital, which is always going to be the closest area hospital, unless there's sometimes a specialization. Uh, let's say if someone is a cardiac uh, patient and it's not the closest areas area, um, the, the closest hospital in the area, but a town over, it, they're known as a good cardiac center. You can actually make requests and wherever they can accommodate that, I'm sure they will. Um, is there a visiting podiatrist, a visiting psychologist, or what about audiologist, all those specialties, because the more that there are specialists coming to the environment, the less you're going to have to coordinate these visits. And it also helps with coordination of care right. uh, that the case manager is aware of right. what's going on in a person's right. life. Now, I know there are also the specific kinds of communities called continuing care communities, um, from independent living to, you know, a nursing home care. Um, so these do provide kind of transitional uh, placement, right? In terms of, you know, if you, your, your, your loved one could enter as an independent person and then, you know, move to assisted living and then to nursing home as, as needed. Um, anything people should know about those kinds of facilities? It's, it's something to consider. I think like uh, many, with many things, there's pros and cons. So a mm -hmm. continuing care community will have on the same, in the same compound and right. on the layout of the place, uh, as you mentioned, maybe independently living where it's almost like apartment life that graduates to assisted living where there's more brought in to a person's, um, for a person's convenience. And then if that isn't sufficient meeting needs are going to uh, a nursing home that's like on the same premises. Mm -hmm. And um, so the advantages are, Yes, there'll be a, a continuum of, of um, a progression, all within sort of the same umbrella, the same family. Same, yeah. What's the drawback? Well, what if their assisted living is fabulous, but the nursing home isn't so fabulous? Mm -hmm. And you, you don't always know that ahead of time because those things can change from right. year to year. Right. So right. I, I don't necessarily, you know, also you're not going to be so embracing if they say, you know what, mom or dad uh, really isn't, their needs are not being appropriately met in independent living. They need assisted living now. Right. They need to move to the next building over. And those are transitions that are very hard, you know, because you're seeing the progression Um and uh, decline typically. And you don't always want to look at it in a clinical way, which is what, how the environment, the, the professionals in the environment may be looking at it. Right. Way. Now, do a certain assisted living facilities, do they have, uh, I assume they, you know, they have relationships with other nursing home facilities and other facilities that you can kind of network and, and, and basically, you know, communicate, you know, and figure out, you know, before you need to make that transition, what are your other options? Right. I mean, I, yeah, usually the dialogue starts. I've never really seen it happen where a person is fine for assisted living one day and then not the next day. Right. Typically, there's 
uh, a series of, of bounces that happen, you know, back and forth to the hospital and back and forth to rehab. And maybe they start with more frequency and the conversation may start up like, you know, we can't really prevent the falls from happening. Uh, mom forgets to use the, the walker or refuses. Um, I, I, for, from the 17 years I spent in assisted living, I have really seen a lot of pure and good intention. It doesn't mean that everything can be perfect, but I, when I took care of my own father, everything wasn't perfect. All I could right. do is try the best I could. And that's, that's what it comes down to. So, um, so the conversation, when that starts, it's not because the, the place wants to lose a resident because everybody gets very attached and honestly considers it family. I mean, right. I was, I was there more than I was at home. Uh, they're, they're bringing up that dialogue because they feel like we can't really meet the needs that we see going on or it's going in that direction. Right. So they open up the dialogue about right. that. Right. So in the last segment coming up, um, which we'll get to shortly, uh, I want to be talking a bit about, you know, the, so the most, for me, the most difficult, you know, aspect, which is, you know, dealing with um, um, people with dementia, you know, especially when they're close to you. Um, so, um, there are options institutionally for this, but, but now as in your current position, you're involved in all sorts of situations. So when we come back, I just want to, you know, shift the conversation to how do we provide best kind of care for those with, uh, dementia. Um, so folks, we'll be back shortly after break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with much more from Robin Marks. I look forward to it. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mac. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're here talking with Robin Marks, the executive director 
of the Alzheimer's uh, Resource Disease Resource Center. Sorry, Rob. That's it. It's Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center. Right, right. ADRC. ADRC. That's the problem. I always think of ADRC. Uh, so she's the executive director, and um, so she covers a whole range of, of issues dealing with Alzheimer's. So some of it is with home care, but some of it is with institutional care, and also a lot with um, uh, with the caregivers, you know, family caregivers. Um, so um, how do you work with families, Robin, when, when someone, you know, believes they have a you know, possible Alzheimer's diagnosis, what's the next step? How do people engage you or other people in, in organizations around the country that, that are Alzheimer's related? Well, we feel proud that we're really basically a phone call away mm-hmm. and we're an email away. We are very responsive and uh, we, we do recognize that it's a slow journey. And we're there for the continuum of care that accompanies uh, dementia. Uh, We're called Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center, but Alzheimer's is just one form of dementia. It's the most common form, but we actually deal with with all the types. Uh, Many years ago, they used to call it senility. I almost feel like that's the best term because it's a little less scary than Alzheimer's and dementia. It tells you that someone's not 100% okay and in terms of their judgment and functioning. And then you have to look closer to see how it manifests in each individual. That's the approach we take, a very individualized approach. Every family is a little bit different. Uh, The dynamics in a family are different, who is able to do what and who is open to uh, entertaining various things. Some people do want home care and don't want home care. You talked about the pandemic before. That had a very big bearing on on home care. Some people didn't want anyone in their homes, especially if they were visiting, you know, taking care of other people. So uh, that threw a very big challenge into relief and respite that some people were getting. Um, In terms of what do we do? So we have Wonderful programming right now, not on premises. We're doing it through uh, digital formats like Facebook Live uh, and some YouTube where we are um, providing art and music. And typically we would do it on premises. We're very big on education and training. And that is for the person that's taking care of um, an individual with with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia disorder. Uh, We have done it for professionals. We are much more now focused on sort of direct to consumer, meaning the family caregiver always has been a focus of ours, but there's certain training that we gave to professionals that now we're providing for family caregivers because we want to avoid hospitalizations, especially at this time. And if you can anticipate needs very often, they don't have to escalate. Right. So, and I say that with, with an asterisk, really, because I don't want anyone to feel like if they do everything right, uh, that it's not so cause and effect that everything right is going to happen. You can do everything right, and there still could be a continued decline. You can do everything right and still have a behavioral issue erupt. Uh, it could be from a urinary tract infection that nobody can see. It, you know, it's not a, a visible uh, kind of thing, and uh, it has an effect on on someone's mind. So. Right, right. I think that um, these are tough issues, you know, and I think that, um, you know, as, as you've said, there's there's not one size fits all kind of um, 
uh, approach to this. Um, and I think that that the training of the caregivers, especially family caregivers, I think that that you your shift there to also address those needs, I think are critical because so many people are at home still. You know, families want to keep their loved ones at home if possible, but it's tough. You know, you have yeah. you can hire caregivers. Um, uh, I guess you could also, you know, look, ask agencies for caregivers who have specialized training in Alzheimer's and dementia patients. Um, but it's good for the family to be aware of them as well. Very good. Very good. Not only, even if they're not in the role of the primary caregiver, what if you're going to have your parent with you for a week during the holidays? Right. You still are part of a family and there's still social gatherings, hopefully. Uh, you want that person to be part of as many things as possible. So I do think that everybody having uh, more knowledge and education and training in when to do what uh, is very, very beneficial for the overall quality of life for the whole family. Right, right. Now, what about other kinds of support? I mean, one of the big issues, especially with um, dementia patients, is that it, it's, it's a heavy lift. I think if you can handle as a caregiver, a dementia patient, that really equips you to deal with almost any kind of patient, you know, in terms of yes. the, the, the emotional commitment and the knowledge you need. Um, what about getting a, a support system uh, and, and other kinds of resources, you know, whether with your organization or uh, I think there are a lot of these resources are around the country. So people should look for their local organizations as well. They can. Or well, of course, now in the time of, um, virtual life, uh, it it does extend everybody's uh, reach, but there will come a time where things are back in person. Uh, Support groups are so valuable, Uh, not only in terms of just being able to take what's in your head in this small space and air it out in a larger room uh, with people that do get it, even though they're having their own individual experience, it is shared. And that fellowship means a lot also because being a caregiver can be very isolating. It's very consuming. And just creating a space where you do have this connection with other people who are going through a similar uh, set of challenges. Uh, and, and some of it is a little thankless. You know, you're, you're, you could be doing the right thing for your mom or dad and getting nothing but resistance in return because, you know, it's, they're not it, dealing with the same reality that you are as far as what's beneficial for them. So uh, now there are people who are a little shy about being in a group or they're not ready to start that. We do individual care consultations as well. So uh, also I'm very personalized with the groups that I put together because I don't think we, we, we separate adult children in a support group from spouses in a support group because it's a very different experience. And generationally it's very different as an experience. Um, In addition, what if, uh, what if I have, you know, a, a few people who are spouses and it doesn't really seem like there's a common thread maybe for them, then maybe, you know, maybe some women relate better when there isn't uh, a husband around or vice versa. So, so we try to do some very good matchmaking with the way we structure our groups and uh, definitely to be there for resources like, Oh, uh, we're noticing this or that behavior with mom or dad, you know, how do we get a diagnosis and I think a good uh, neurological workup is important besides the primary care physician. Um, 
so that you have uh, you have that aspect to that specialization, particularly with a geriatric focus. Right, right. Now, earlier you mentioned the whole issue of, of cultural issues, um, which I think, you know, still is, you know, with, within certain ethnicities and sort of the expectation, even uh, well, I, across the board, but I think it's, uh, you do experience it, but especially, I guess, immigrant families where um, taking care of mom and dad, you know, they don't even identify as a caregiver. So, right. um, you know, uh, when they don't expect to get help and, uh, you know, are there, I'm sure that this is something you've dealt with, but I believe that we've talked before that that the, the direction is changing. People are starting to really understand the issues. Well, they're living a different life than their parents did in whatever country they came from, right? So even my mother was home to take care of her mother when it was my father's time to need help. I Not only was I a mom of, you know, kind of young children, but I also had a full-time and demanding job because healthcare is demanding. And I couldn't sit and kind of uh, chat with him about World War II the way right. people could uh, in an assisted living environment. It was really... It was really healthier. I mean, I was a daddy's girl. It was not for a lack of love. I just, you know, would have had the choice to, I wasn't an at-home mom, and then I would have to become an at-home daughter, and I wasn't really in a position to do that. And I don't even think I would have been the best choice for that. I think I was the best choice as a daughter who loved him and helped orchestrate all the right decisions. Right, right. Um, so going forward, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty along the way. And I think that yes. you've mentioned before that one of the keys is to um, to learn along the way, uh, to be humble enough to realize we don't have all the answers. Um, so, what are your your advice to to caregivers you know, for for those with uh, with parents or other loved ones with dementia? How should you, you know, sort of take care of yourself? I mean, I think this is a big issue of self care, avoiding burnout. What are the, some of the tips you have for you know if you are you know a caregiver? I, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of analogies. Uh, one of them is you can't pour from an empty cup. If, if that resonates with you, um, keep that in mind that you must have your own self filled up in order to be able to give. Um, it doesn't make you selfish. It means that it, it just, you have to take care of yourself in order to be able to give to others. Um, they say that about love. You have to love yourself before you can love somebody else. So I think sometimes what I've noticed, uh, not not an official science uh, study, but informally, a lot of times I find that the girls, I mean, the daughters are hardwired for guilt. They could be doing all the right things, but if they're not getting approval from their parent, they're second guessing themselves for the rest of their lives. That's a heavy burden and it doesn't always get expressed. There isn't always the language for those feelings. So uh, I just believe help helps. And so, uh, you know, Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center is a great starting point because if we're not the right address, so to speak, for what's needed, we will have a very good chance of knowing that and we will share that information because the idea is even along with other people, other organizations that address Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, we're all here to do the right thing for the person and the families. And uh, we make it a point to know 
who else is in the village of healthcare so that we can be more effective that way. And I'm sure you know that that's true, Ron, because, you know, we we know a lot of the same people and uh, maintain all these relationships and try to stay aware and abreast of what's going on so that we're that much more useful to the people who need us. Right. Just quickly, are there other people, uh, I know there's a growing field since there are so many uh, issues with both assisted living and the the level of care for uh, supportive housing all the way to dementia patients. Are there people, are there experts in the field who can help you make that kind of decision? They're called geriatric care managers. Um, There are different kinds of geriatric care managers. Some of them specialize in helping people obtain Medicaid or Medicare, and they're good with the the paperwork and gathering, helping you gather the documents. But there are geriatric care managers where their emphasis is on coordination of care and helping with the appropriate matches for what's going to address the needs. So uh, that's a good thing to know. And... um, Again, uh, there's even um, people who help navigate the transitions when someone's coming home from a medical environment uh, to what do they need at home in terms of equipment, in terms of how much home care and and help a person get all that they should be entitled to. Right, right. Well, there's uh, so much more we can talk about, but I think we're going to have to leave it there for today, Robin. I I just wanted to... Thank you for being a terrific guest and all the important information you've uh, given us. Um, I know there's much more to talk about. uh, People can continue the conversation afterwards. Um, So, Robin, if people have questions, what's the best way for people to contact you? My direct line is 631-820-8068. You will probably be prompted to leave a message. Please do with your name and your number. I get those messages not only on my phone, but on my email. And I'm mm-hmm. always checking my emails. Right. And my uh, my email address is Robin, R-O-B-I-N dot Marks, M-A-R-K-S at A as in Apple, D as in Dom, A-D, R as in Ron, <laughs> right. uh, C as in Charles, A-D-R-C, Inc, I-N-C dot org. Uh, that's another way to to reach me, and we're very prompt about returning calls. I work as Great. part of a team. We have wonderful, a wonderful program director and a wonderful executive assistant, and all of us uh, work very much Great. in unison. Okay. All right. So, so tell your friends if they've missed today's live show, you can listen to Robin as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Um, if you have questions for me, um, you can email me at ron.roel at gmail.com. So be sure to join me next Monday at 12 noon Pacific or 3 p.m. Eastern time when I'll be talking with Linda Fostek, a widely recognized speaker, author, and expert in crisis planning who will help us successfully manage the crisis that we definitely will face, or as she puts it, get off the worry-go-round. So until next week, keep moving forward, 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week. 